on my house uh, growing up, the TV was usually on, uh, and it was on during dinner and then after dinner. And there'd be uh, usually some of the shows that came on around dinner time were Seinfeld and Friends. And you can we can debate whether I should have been watching Seinfeld and Friends when I was you know whatever age. But what I got kind of as a picture of what adulthood meant uh, from those shows is like you're kind of always just hanging out with your friends. Uh, Seinfeld, you see that. But then especially in Friends, it's like, okay, when I'm an adult, that's what it's going to be like. I've got this big old open room, and I'm like, you know, living with a friend, and my other friend, you know, lives close by, and we're all just sitting around, hanging out either at the apartment or the coffee shop, and you just get to do that. That's what it means to be an adult. And we can all kind of develop this picture of what life's going to be like when we're kids, of like, when I grow up, this is what life's going to be like. And Often that, I mean, rarely that exact, probably never that exact picture comes to be because we usually don't envision uh, our life being having suffering or pain in it or heartache. That we just imagine, I'm going to be, this is the picture of my life is going to be, and we don't add in, and I'm probably going to have cancer, and I'm going to probably have this, and I'm probably going to have a loved one die. We don't picture our life going that way. And so when we're kids and picturing in, like when I'm you know, 30, this is what things are going to look like, is that... It doesn't turn out that way because there's things we don't imagine for ourselves in it. The pain, the heartache, the setbacks, and, the, and loss as part of that picture. And life on earth isn't supposed to be this hard. The, that the way things are, it's not supposed to be so painful, so unjust, so evil. And there's so much heartache in the world, so many problems, so many uh, people suffering with things that we feel like we can't even do anything about it. The best that we can do is pray, which is a lot. There's division politically, racially, nationally, relationally. We fight, we kill, we make war. Companies are, and people are filled with greed and will get money uh, based on other people's uh, pain and other people and not, you know, keep track of my, I don't care if my company is doing things that work hard on other people, I'm making money off it. And so how do we deal with all that? We have this picture of how life would be and then we grow up and there's all kinds of things in it that we wouldn't have imagined or chosen for ourselves. And in this series we're in in the gospel according to Luke I'm called to seek and to save that's Jesus what he said what I'm about in Luke 19 10 he's like I've come to do this to seek and to save the lost and his invitation to us is you know we all have a picture of how life will end up and Jesus invitation to us is uh, follow me into the good life into the blessed life into life as it's meant to be into the life that you were made for and it's another name for that, Jesus says, is it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that heaven, I pray in God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is inviting people into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, which is where his reign and rule uh, are, uh, are lived out, and where we experience life as it's meant to be with God uh, at the center. And it's coming through Jesus, we're told. And Luke, when he's writing in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says, I'm writing to give you certainty about the things that you were taught. So he's imagining himself writing to people who love God, and they already have been taught about Jesus, and he's saying, I want to give you certainty about those things that you were taught. And we might ask, well, why do they need certainty? Like, you've heard it, maybe you've even met Jesus, and you've believed it, so what do they need certainty about? Well, because things didn't turn out as they planned. That they had a picture of how this was going to go, of what following Jesus was going to mean, what being part of the kingdom of God was going to mean, and it didn't turn out the way that they thought. They had suffering, pain, persecution, rejection, threats. And you might be asking, well, did we get this right? <laughs> he said, follow me. You're going to enter the kingdom of God, which is this party, 
like he uses parties a lot as this image of this is what the kingdom of God is like. And we're like, it doesn't feel like a party. Uh, there's a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. So we, did we get this right? Did we believe uh, in Jesus and it was all for nothing? Did he get it wrong? What's going on here? And so they want, need certainty. Jesus said we'd be blessed that we part of his kingdom. Were we wrong to follow him? And so they need certainty in that. And so in this section of Luke, we're in uh, chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Is that this is like, you know, the final month of his life. He's going to spend a week in Jerusalem, uh, about a little short of a week, and he's going to be uh, rejected, suffer, crucified, and killed, and then raised on the third day uh, afterwards. But he's on his way to Jerusalem, final, you know, month of his life. And people have this expectation that now Jesus, on our way to Jerusalem, he's going to solve all of our problems. Their problem is that the Romans, the Roman Empire, has taken over the land of Israel, and what they expected was the Messiah, the Christ, when he comes, when God sends him, he's going to get rid of all these problems, that we're going to have our land back, the kingdom of God is going to be in Israel, that now we're going to not have the Romans uh, holding us, you know, <laughs> occupying our land anymore, and Jesus, when we get to Jerusalem, is going to solve all the problems. This is the moment that we're going to get, become in charge. But then, he didn't solve those problems, at least not in the way they expected. And one, and the two really, three helpful words uh, to understand Jesus' kingdom is already and not yet. And we're going to go over what those two things mean uh, today, that Jesus' kingdom is already here and also not yet here. And it's very helpful for understanding Jesus, following him, and what we can expect as we follow him. So uh, the first we're going to cover is already here. Jesus' kingdom is already here in uh, chapter 17 of Luke. Uh, through, uh, starting in verse 11 to um, verse 21 in ch chapter 17. And so I'm going to read you the story that's happening here in uh, verse 11, Luke 17. It says, On the way to Jerusalem he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So we're just going to stop there and talk about that story a bit. Is that these ten people have leprosy. Uh, which is, you, it's a little different than what's today called uh, Hansen's disease, um, but it, it's basically that you're, you're kind of like nerves uh, are like leaving, like breaking down, and so you don't feel pain. And so often what happens is people's, you know, skin gets slowly like rubbed off, they lose fingers and stuff, and it's just kind of like uh, this awful thing. And so if you see a leper, you might see somebody missing fingers and having just gouges, and they can't feel it, they're not feeling the pain of it. And so it's just kind of like, it's almost like you're kind of rotting in a way. And they're all diseased and they're unclean in the Old Testament. Uh, when uh, there was, that was a term from the Old Testament, clean and unclean. If someone had leprosy, they needed to be separated from other people. They were unclean because you could then spread that. It was contagious. You could spread that to other people. And uh, they, so they tended to be outcasts. And you notice that they're from a dis at a distance from Jesus. They're yelling out to him because... Uh, they're supposed to announce themselves, you know, or people announce, hey, there's a leper coming through, and everyone would need to depart. You know, if I was a leper and I was walking, you have to make space. And so they had to, like, stay at a distance from people to not give other people leprosy. And so they're suffering physically. 
if their body is having, if they're suffering socially, they can't interact with people in a normal way, they have to stay distant from them, and they didn't fit, they don't belong, and they're suffering spiritually, that they can't go to synagogue where the other Jews would meet in, uh, in their town. So they can't go to, um, we learned this guy's a Samaritan, but you can't go to those religious activities that you get to do. You can't go up to the temple. You can't go where other people are worshiping, so you're suffering spiritually. And they might think, I feel dirty, defective, unwelcome, unwanted. I don't fit in. I don't belong. And maybe you can relate to those feelings. Maybe you are feeling them today, or you felt those feelings. Maybe you're like, you know what, there's this place in my life where I just don't feel like I belong there. I feel unclean, unworthy. I have to keep my distance. And like people kind of when I enter a room, maybe they just don't look at me quite right, that I don't feel welcome there. And so maybe you can relate to that. And so these 10 lepers at a distance, they call out, and Jesus says, okay, go show yourselves to the priest. So what you'd have to do is kind of like, um, uh, what's it called? The health, Department of Health or whatever. It's like you had leprosy, now you go to the priest, and they can give you this declaration, like, okay, now you're clean, you're good, you can interact with people again. So he's like, go to the priest and tell them. And as they go, the leprosy is gone, which would be amazing (laughs) that you have your body deteriorating. All of a sudden, you're like, wait, I've been restored. And then one of them returns. And we're told he praises God, and as opposed to before, where he kept his distance and yelled out, now he comes close to Jesus, and is at Jesus' feet, and he is giving thanks. And then we're told, now this was a Samaritan, which, for if Jewish people were reading this, they would have been hearing this story, they would have been a little appalled. We, we heard that Jesus was going to Jerusalem on the border of uh, Judea and Samaria, and so it's almost like he's skirting right there, and it's like, okay, which one might needed help in this instance? Well, were these Jewish lepers? Were these Samaritan lepers? Turns out, it turns out to be a Samaritan. And the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. It was like they uh, had this split in the country, and that the Samaritans worshipped at a different place, and the Jewish people worshipped at a different place, so there was this deep animosity. But then we're told this person was a Samaritan, and he's the only one who returned to give thanks. That it was like the foreigner... The people, the person who's not even like a part of the people of Israel at this point, that they have this different temple, and they're like, they're, he's the one that responded. And there's this picture of Jesus as doing this border between Galilee and uh, Samaria, that it's almost like he's bringing humanity together. There's these divisions, and he's bringing them together. It doesn't matter where you're from, your background, the color of your skin, uh, what you've been worshiping before, that you can come to Jesus and get this healing. It can all come to him for salvation. And it's interesting that Jesus points out in verse 19, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. And well could also be translated as saved. So it's interesting that ten were healed, but only one was saved. Is that they got released from their disease of leprosy, but did they have this faith that brought them to Jesus afterwards? That Jesus loves people whether they trust him or not. He relieves their suffering. But then... That doesn't mean all are saved. And then we're ju- going to jump down into the next sec- section, verse 20 through 21. I'm going to read those for you. So this story just happened, and now verse 20 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the Pharisees, you know, Jesus' big message is, kingdom of God, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then the Pharisees, these religious teachers, are like, well, when is it coming? Can we get a timeline here? Is it coming like right now when you get to Jerusalem? Are you going to kick out the Romans now? Is it going to be 10 years? Are you going to build up an army and then defeat the Romans? They ask when. And Jesus tells them, well, he doesn't tell them when, but he answers how. It's not going to come in ways 
that can be observed. It's not coming how you think. People can't say, look, here it is, or come on over here, there it is, it's right here. It's not going to come in ways that can be observed like that. But then it's interesting that he says, people can't say, look where it is, look here it is. And then Jesus actually says, look, he says, behold. It's like, wait a second, like, you're going to hear people saying, look, here it is, don't listen to them, they're not right. But he says, look, behold, right now, the kingdom is coming in your midst. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. How? I'm just going to flip back to chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. I don't have the page number for the Black Bibles, but this is Jesus' inaugural sermon. That when he's about to start his ministry, you know, kind of like a president gives our inaugural address, it's like Jesus does his inaugural sermon uh, in, his, in uh, Luke 4, 18 to 19. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, from the Old Testament. He reads this The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus takes a passage from the Old Testament where people are anticipating what it's going to be like when God's kingdom comes, and then he reads it, and then he says, this is being fulfilled today. And notice what he says. What's going to happen in God's kingdom? That he's going to proclaim good news to the poor. Send me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. Set, liberty, uh, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, this is what's happening. People are going to get released from the things that hold them down, that oppress them, that make, cause suffering. They're going to be released. And then they're going to be restored. That the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk. That there's release and restoration and there's really this big thing of reversal. You know how things are now? The suffering, the death, the disease, the sin. There's going to be this reversal that that's all going to go away. And it's going to be flipped up and now there's going to be a new kingdom with a new reality. And then chapter 7, verses 22 through 23. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but John the Baptist, somebody who is preparing the way for people to meet Jesus, he sends some messengers to Jesus and says, Are you the one who's to come? Basically, are you the one who's bringing the kingdom or is it going to be somebody else? And the reason he's asking that is because he's sitting in prison. He's been imprisoned by uh, Herod, who's ruling over the region, who is a bad king. He's been imprisoned by him. And so it's like, wait, I thought you were going to set the captives free, Jesus. And I prepared the way for you, and now I'm sitting in prison. What is going on here? I thought I would be released. Are you the one who's, gonna, to come, who's supposed to come or, or not? And Jesus says, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. In chapter 11, verse 20, the religious teachers are criticizing Jesus, saying, It's by the power of Satan that you're casting out demons, you're the devil. And he says to them, if, if, But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he's saying to the religious teachers in chapter 17, For those with eyes to see and ears to hear, the kingdom is here now. It is coming right now. The signs are there in Jesus' person, his words, his work. The kingdom is where the king is, and the king is here. And that's being proven by Jesus releasing people, restoring people, that good news are here. The poor are hearing good news. The lame are walking. He's healing people. And so he says to them, don't you see the reversal is taking place, that everything that's been turned upside down in God's world, Jesus is putting right side up again. God is undoing all that sin has ruined, all the disease, the demons, and even death. 
And so that's the part where Jesus' kingdom is already here. He says, it's already here in the midst of you. And now the second part is, and also, it's not yet fully here. It's already here and not fully here. Already, not yet. Jesus' kingdom is already and not yet. So we get this uh, starting in chapter 17, verse 22. And so let me, let me read just that, that first verse, verse 22. And he said to the disciples, so he's talking to the Pharisees, <laughs> And now he's talking to the disciples. He said to the disciples, The days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And so I'm going to do a couple definitions here. There's two kind of weird phrases. Um, Son of Man. We might get used to that phrase reading the Bible because Jesus uses that a lot of times to refer to himself. And it's like, well, I mean, I could say that too. I'm a Son of Man. And in one way, every, you know, every, every male... or Every, yeah, every male is a son of a man. You know, that's just kind of a human condition. But also, in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel saw this vision. And the vision he saw uh, is that there was one like a son of man that came with the clouds of heaven. Someone like a son of man. And they came to God, and then God gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so this son of man figure is enthroned by God, given authority, I mean, you know, authority, like God's authority, and is also then served and worshipped by people. And you, it's kind of like, this is like a God-man. Like, we're supposed to only serve and worship God, but now you have this, like, person who's, like, enthroned next to God, who is a son of man, who's being kind of, like, treated almost equal as God. And so we had this vision, and so Jesus uses this term, uh, I'm the son of man uh, because it was a little bit more uh, probably um, ambiguous than the term Messiah. When people heard Messiah, I'm the Christ, that means, oh, you're going to come and boot out all the human people who are oppressing us. But he uses a little more ambiguous term, son of man. It's like, well, is he just saying he's like the son of a guy? Or is he using this figure from Daniel chapter 7? It's kind of a little more ambiguous. And Jesus wanted to keep his full identity under wraps until people understood it. And so there's a son of man figure in the Old Testament. And then he says, it's going to come when you're going to want to see the days of the son of man. And that's a big theme in the Bible, the day. Often it's the day of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament, New Testament. The day, the day, the day. This day is going to come. And the day, uh, it goes back all the way back to Exodus, which we covered this fall. The day that God rescued them from a corrupt, oppressive, enslavering, murdering human system. Uh, the Egyptians that were uh, enslaved them were murdering their babies. Uh, and so God comes and frees them. That was the day. They sing about the day after the Exodus happens. Um, there's a song, and they're like, this is the day that this has all happened. And so now people began to have this hope, that this hope that God will bring the day about, once again, another day when he rescues us from oppressive, enslaving human systems and empires of this world to give our land back where God's going to put everything right. He's going to heal what's broken, confront evil, give his people joy, peace, security, stability. And it's basically going to be life as it's meant to be, that there's going to be both justice, that God's going to deal with all the wrongdoers, and salvation, that he's going to save his people. It's going to be, God's going to bring things back to how they're meant to be, life as it's, uh, we were made for. And so it's good news for God's people, bad news for uh, the enemies of God. And this we could refer to the day as when the kingdom of God is going to come. It's expressed back in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 75. Uh, let me read. This gives you a little taste of what Jesus was fulfilling, of what the Jewish people were hoping for when the Messiah came. 
This is when, uh, close to around Jesus' birth, um, someone's singing this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so that's the, the taste of this hope of that our, we're going to save from the hand of our enemies. It's very physical, that the kingdom of God was very physical. And often we can think of it as like, it's just this only spiritual thing. It's just something that's happening spiritually. We all go to heaven. We're going to lose our bodies. There's not going to be no earth. But no, it's a very physical thing that's happening. So there is this expectation as the Messiah is coming, that there would be this day where God would once again rescue them from uh, people who are against them. But Jesus says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see that day, where you're going to be saying, Jesus, come do something about this evil, about this injustice, about this pain. Jesus, I want to see that day when you come and you get rid of all these corrupt companies and, our, and governments that aren't looking out for the welfare of their people, of, all, of people being oppressed, of wars. Jesus, please come. I want to see the day when you come and do this. And he says, you're going to want to see it, and yet it's not going to come. Why? And it's like, but why? Why would he do that? So let's continue <clears throat> uh, in 23 and 24. He says to them, They will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And so he's saying to his disciples now, people are going to say, look, here it is, there. And just like he said to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he's like, look, people are going to say it, but he's like, don't, don't pay attention to that. Basically saying, you know, lightning flashes across the sky. You know it did. It's obvious. If somebody's telling you that the day is here, then it hasn't come. Because if you have to be informed that it's here, then it didn't happen. Because you'll know when it's happening. So he's saying, if somebody's coming saying, look, here it is, don't pay attention because you're going to know when it's going to happen. And then verse 25, he says something surprising. But first, he, referring to the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So it's, wait, on the one hand, we thought you were going to be this victorious, triumphant Messiah who saves us. But now you're saying the Son of Man must suffer first, be rejected, and die. Like, what is it? How do those two go together? How can you be our Savior if you're dead? Our Savior kills our enemies. He doesn't get killed by them. So this doesn't make any sense. But let's keep going. He says in 26 through 30, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And so he's saying when that day comes, people are going to be going around their you know, normal everyday business. And I think what's really instructive about this is he looks back at these two instances where God brought judgment on people. And he doesn't say, you know, people are going to be going around doing evil things. They're going to be robbing people. They're going to be killing people. They're going to be raping people. And then the Son of Man comes. Uh, no, he says, people are going to be doing their normal lives, getting married, eating, hanging out, 
cleaning their house. And all of a sudden, the Son of Man is going to come, and they're not going to be ready for it. It's going to be a sudden thing. And you might even look at them and be like, well, they're good people living a good life. Yes, but without God, without alignment to Jesus and his kingdom. And then in 31 through 33, he gives this warning. I already read 31, but let's go to 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And so he's saying, well, okay, remember Lot's wife. If you know the story of when Lot and his family were fleeing out of Sodom before it got destroyed, uh, the, God tells him, don't look back. And Lot, Lot's wife is going, and she looks back, and then she turns into uh, this pile of salt. And so he's saying, don't, don't look back. You need to leave that old life behind. It's being destroyed. Say no to it. Leave it back. And then he says, uh, 34 and 35, um, that you're makes clear you're not leaving the routines of life. He says, I tell you, in that night, there'll be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. There'll be two women grinding together, one will be taken, the other left. And then they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so he's saying, you know, people are going to be just doing their normal everyday things, and then all of a sudden it's going to come, and you've already let go of your old life, and you've not looked back, and then uh, you will be saved. And they ask, well, where is this going to happen? In Jerusalem coming up right now? And he says, you're going to know it because just how you know there's a corpse dead and there's vultures, you're going to know that this is happening because there's going to be signs to show it. And then he gives them this little story, verses 1 through 8, while you're waiting for this to happen. In chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So we're kind of there with that certainty thing. He says he tells them the story to the effect, his desire is that they would not lose heart. And he gives the story of this widow who has lost her husband. She's suffering in some way, well, just from that, but also she has an adversary. She's seeking out a judge. She's got some sort of justice issue in her life. And she's very, I mean, widows, very vulnerable, low status, powerless, very needy in that day. And maybe you can relate to that, that you're like, I feel so vulnerable. I feel like I've lost kind of my standing in the world. I feel very needy. I feel powerless. I've got things happening at work. I've got things happening in the government. I've got situations where it just feels like I'm powerless. I can't do anything. There's bad things happening. I'm going and I'm trying to figure it out, but I'm just stuck in it at the mercy of people and systems who don't care. And God says, look at this widow, this unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God or respect man, gives her justice. And this is a very common argument in the Bible, which is, how much more if a person like that would give her justice for, for her crying out, how much more will God, the one who is the righteous judge always, who loves you and cares for you, how much more will he give you justice? How much more can you trust in him? So don't lose heart. Keep praying for it. And so the kingdom is already and not yet. And the people of Israel, they're looking out a hero, looking for a hero 
Uh, I kept having that song, you know, holding out for a hero coming to my my mind when I was doing this. I looked up the lyrics. Does this fit? No, it doesn't fit. So sorry if looking out, if looking for a hero reminds you of that. But they're looking up for a hero. Who's going to stand up to the enemies, to the bullies, to the persecutors, to the people pushing us down? And maybe if you're not feeling it still, you look around and we see, God, there's things wrong in this world. Who's going to stand up to all this? Who's going to stop it and say no more? Who's going to stand up to the villains in the darkness? And the people of Israel would say, our Messiah, our Savior, our Christ, He will come, He'll be victorious over it, He'll triumph over it, He's going to put an end to all of this. But then none of it goes as expected in Jerusalem. Is it going to be there in Jerusalem, Jesus? Is this when it's going to happen? Is that where? Is that when? Is it coming? Is it going to happen now? But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, He's rejected, He suffers, He dies. And so He doesn't defeat their enemies, He's defeated by their enemies. The corrupt systems are still there. Evil won. There's still pain, suffering, injustice. Where's the kingdom? What happened? We had our hope in this guy. And that's what two, actually in Luke 24, which we'll get to, uh, two disciples walking with Jesus. And they don't recognize him. And he's like, why? What, what are you talking about? Oh, we're talking about Jesus. He did all these things. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. But he's been dead three days now. And so he wasn't. Right? He died. But then what happens is he's resurrected. And now they've discovered, well, he actually is the one. He died, that's not what we expected, but he is the one who's come. Jesus is uh, God's Christ, his Messiah, the King coming to save us, our Savior. And it, it turned out different than they expected. How did he do it? Well, it was by the cross. And Jesus' death on the cross was not defeat by evil, but his victory over evil. How does Jesus bring God's kingdom to earth? It's by love by dying in the place of the people that are killing him. They should be the ones dying, and yet he's dying in their place, in our place, by taking our place. How does Jesus defeat evil and darkness, sin, Satan, death? It's by taking our place. He overcomes evil with good. He pushes back the darkness and the evil with sacrificial love, and he confronts sin and Satan and death. Not, not the Romans, because what's behind the Romans and what they're doing to Israel and to any empire, any kingdom, any government in the world that's doing that, what's behind them is Satan and people filled with sin and then using death. And so Jesus comes and confronts those enemies, the enemy of enemies, behind the enemies, the people who may think they hate me, they're against me. Jesus comes and defeats them and fights them. And it's like, if you imagine like an oil tanker in the ocean and there's like this poison leaking into the leaking into the ocean. Imagine that's like what's happening in the world, that because of sin, there's this poison leaking in the world that kills and destroys and brings curse. And Jesus comes and says, it's kind of a weird image, but this is what came to my mind. Jesus comes and says, I'm just going to absorb that. All that death and curse and evil leaking in the world, I'm going to come, I'm just going to take that. And so it doesn't go out here. And Jesus is like the sponge that comes into people's lives and he absorbs all those effects of sin and evil and Satan, then he absorbs it up into himself. And that's why he died. He takes it and removes it. And so they had this expectation that God's kingdom would come all at once through the, the, the death of their enemies. Instead, Jesus died for God's enemies. Jesus brings life from death, victory through defeat. Jesus has ripped the hole. And how this is already and not yet, it's like, well, the kingdom, that future kingdom we've been waiting for, well, it's not yet fully here, and yet it is already here. It's like Jesus ripped a hole in time, and now that future is trickling back and coming back into the present right now. It's like the future, it's like the, the table of history uh, is kind of tilted so that the future is rolling down into the present because Jesus has done that. He's opened a hole for the future kingdom to come in. That new creation 
this breaking of the broken creation. Can you see? And he's saying, can you see that? People are being healed. The poor are hearing good news. People who feel like, I can't ever, God doesn't love me at all. They're hearing good news that God really does love you. That he wants to welcome you. That God is doing this work now. It's already here. That there's life sprouting up amidst death. And he's conquered it. And who could do this? None but the God-man. The Son of Man who also has the authority and the place of God. That Jesus can do it. So as we think about how to make this personal, verse 8 of chapter 18, he asks, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And for us, that's what he's looking for, faith. He wants to find faith. And really he's asking, which side of the reverse are you going to be on? I created this very uh, detailed thing with my Legos. But <laughs> Jesus is saying everything's going to be reversed. Those who are on top and those who are on bottom when the kingdom comes, it's going to be reversed. That those who are on bottom are now on top. Those who are on top are now on bottom. Or the first will be last. The first are going to be last. And the, those who are last are going to be first. And this, so it's going to be this reversal that wherever you find yourself right now, that it's going to be the exalted are going to be humbled. They're going to be put down. And the humbled are going to be exalted. That there's going to be this flip of which side. And he's asking, if I'm, gonna, I'm gonna f- looking for faith when I come, which side of the reversal are you going to be on when I come? Are you going to be person who's putting themselves first, who's exalting themselves, who has their blessings now, and then it's going to be taken away from you. Or are you going to be the person who's humbling yourself, who's putting yourself last, who's following God and submitting yourself to Him so that you're going to be reversed and be on top. And so three things that faith, he says he wants to find faith. Faith looks like gratitude for the already, for the already kingdom. Faith looks like gratitude for the already kingdom. It's coming in two stages. Jesus first coming, where he defeats sin, Satan, death, there's death on the cross. And so he can say, look, the kingdom's already here, the party's already started, people are being healed. Not everybody, not all the time, but people are being healed, people are being forgiven. God is welcoming sinners back into his arms, and people are running to him. And don't you see reversal, the reversal's already taking place. God's already doing, undoing what sin has done. He's turning things upside down, and so we can praise God and give thanks. But then secondly, Faith looks like hope for the not yet. Faith looks like gratitude for the already, the healing that does happen, the forgiving that does happen, the justice that does happen. Faith also looks like hope for the not yet. That justice through Jesus will happen. Not everyone is healed now. Not everything is healed. There's not full justice. But Jesus' second coming, this is how I, when I feel like wrongs have been done to me, and it's like, ah, like that needs to be paid for. That needs to be dealt with. They can't get away with that. Whether it's people you hardly know, or big organizations, or government, or you know, close relationships, we can say either they're going to pay for it, or Jesus already has. Either way, it's not up to me. Either they're going to pay for this, Jesus will bring justice, or Jesus has already paid for it. And in that case, who am I? Either, in either case, I'm not the one to hold them accountable for this. Justice will happen. Either Jesus has paid what's demanded, or they will. And so he says, do not lose heart, hope, pray, final justice and salvation and healing. All, the people that aren't healed now, you, we will have a new body in that kingdom. That God will heal it all. The justice that doesn't happen now will come. And to both, in both cases, faith looks like losing our life. Faith looks like gratitude for the already. Faith looks like hope for the not yet. And faith looks like losing our life. Because Jesus says, he's asking us, how do you enter the good life.
how do you experience life as it's meant to be? He said, back up in, let me get the verse for you. He says in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. So how do you enter? It's not by holding on to your life and trying to preserve it. It's by losing it, not by defeating our enemies, by dying for them, by loving them, overcoming evil with good. So if we go back to our our theme for this year, becoming a campfire of God's love, that we want to invite the lost, that's what Jesus did, I've come to seek and save the lost. We want to invite the lost to warm themselves by the fire of God's love for them. That we become a community of gratitude, a community of hope, community where people get a taste of heaven, that the, you know, the, the, the table of history, heaven is rolling by the future state, the future kingdom is rolling into the present, rolling into the present through people who give themselves to Jesus, who say, I'm not going to preserve my life, I'm going to lose it, and through that God's kingdom comes to earth in us, in our midst. I'm going to close with this image. I, uh, I love movie trailers. Maybe you've heard me say this before. I love movie trailers and watching them and getting excited for them, but a movie trailer is only a glimpse of something that is to come. That it gives you some highlights, but the fullness and the best of it and all of it is to come when the movie comes out, when you watch it. And so we, as the church, are to be a movie trailer of what that future is about. That it's not the full thing, it's not yet, but it is already that you've got a taste of it. And now as people see us as a community, a campfire of God's love, they see that's what it's going to be. I want to get in on the full thing when it comes out later. You know, released in theaters near you, released in a world near you, however you want to think of that. But we get to be that for each other and for this world. Let's pray. Father, there's just so much hardship and pain in our lives that we wouldn't have planned for ourselves. This isn't the story we wrote for ourselves, but it's the one you wrote for us. That in all the bad that comes that you do not desire for us, you can use it for good. So God, would you overcome evil with good? Would you overcome suffering and pain and heartache with good? Would you help us to be a people who lose our life, who give it in Jesus' hands so we may find it? Since then we pray. Amen.